Good morning. When my kids get old enough to learn how to drive, they'll be learning from their mom. Because I had two accidents before the age of 18. I'm not sure I'm the person they need to be learning from. As I think back on both of those accidents, which kicked up my insurance so high that I had to start paying for it myself, um, I think both of them were moments that you could have seen coming from a long ways away. This is not my accident, by the way. Um, I did flip over a truck, though, one of them, but that's, that was in my 20s. Um, but, but in those accidents, um, you know, I, th- as I look back on them, I made decisions. And from a long ways away, if you were a witness, I'm sure you could have seen it coming. And when you're watching an accident happen sometimes, it, it feels like we say sometimes it was happening in slow motion. Like you could see it happening from a mile away as a bystander. And so you're like, man, if I was in the car, I could have stopped that. And sometimes we see that in somebody's driving or in a car accident. But sometimes what's even worse is when you see it happening in somebody's life. When, when somebody is in the process of wrecking their life, sometimes you can see it happening in slow motion from a mile away. And that was a little bit of the story of Carlos Whitaker. About 10 or 15 years ago, Carlos was living a very public life as a blogger and a social media influencer. He'd written songs, he was writing books, and everything from the outside seemed great, but in slow motion, he was, he was wrecking his life. And Carlos came to a point where uh, at one point he was living in his, his uh, friend's guest bedroom. He wasn't talking to his wife or his kids He was pretty sure that he'd lost his career, and he wasn't sure how things would emerge. He tells the story of this period in his life in his book, Kill the Spider. And he talks about the fact that he was headed to, in the midst of this, an inpatient treatment center, a place for him to get away from the world and begin to deal with the subterranean issues that were destroying his life. And on the way to this treatment center, he realized that he was going to lose his phone for a week. He was going to have to give up all access to the outside. So like any good son, he called his mother. He told her, Mom, you're not going to be able to reach me for a while. And his dad was there on speakerphone. And his dad said, Carlos, I have a story to tell you. And he's like, Dad, I am like 15 minutes from disconnecting from the world. Like, you got to hurry this story up. Um, and so Carlos's dad told him a story about growing up in Panama and then going back to Panama. He had an opportunity to do ministry there. And Carlos's dad, for me, said, I gave this, this revival message one night. And this woman named Miss Ramirez came down at the end and she said, Mr. Fermin, will you please pray that God cleans the cobwebs out of my life? And Fermin prayed for her, and she went back. And this was one of those old-school tent revivals where there were services every night. The second night, Fermin preached again. Miss Rodriguez came down the the aisle. Mr. Fermin, please pray that God would remove the cobwebs from my life. And he prays for her, and she goes back to her seat. The third night, he sees her, and he just has this sense that she's going to come back for prayer for the exact same thing. And she comes down front, Mr. Fermin, would you please pray that God would clean the cobwebs out of my life? And Fermin says, no, ma'am, we are not going to pray for that anymore. We are going to stop praying that God cleans the cobwebs out of your life, and we are going to pray that God kills the spider. And when Carlos told that story for the first time, I got chills. 
because it so articulated the experience that I had. And on the phone that day, Fermin said to his son, he said, son, don't go there to clean out your cobwebs. Go there and find your spider and kill it. He said, son, I've watched you for your whole life and you are a professional cobweb cleaner. You are professional at projecting this look to the world that everything is okay, that everything is fine, that everything is good, and God has worked in spite of your cobwebs. But if you're going to leave and you're going to disconnect and you're going to invest all this time, don't go there and keep cleaning cobwebs. Go there and kill the spider. Now, I don't know where your life stands today. I hope that you haven't made a mess of things. I hope that you're not in the middle of a wreck. I hope that things have not gotten to that stage. But we all are capable of what happened to Carlos because all of us, at some point or another, we settle for cleaning cobwebs when God has the power to kill spiders. We all settle for for cleaning the symptoms, for dealing with the things that are on the surface, for making small tweaks here and there, when at the core there are still things, problems, choices, lies, stories that we've embraced that are holding us back from what God has for us. And last week when we introduced this series, we said, hey, we're not going to start when we talk about money to just talk about budgets and saving, and spending, and investing, and principles, though we could have. We're going to start at a deeper place with the stories that we've begun to believe about money, the lies that we've embraced about money. And if we were, okay, mixing metaphors, I would say the part of the iceberg is underneath the surface. The things that are going on in our hearts that end up showing up in our habits. And we walked through some of that last week because, and this is the big idea of this week, week two, the path to freedom begins with God's work beneath the surface. The path to financial freedom starts here. It it starts here in this place where God begins to work in our lives beneath the surface. I said last week that my name is not Dave Ramsey. I don't have a headset I may get a little excited, but I won't yell at you today. My approach to money is very different because my approach starts in a very different place. It starts beneath the surface because in my experience, you can know all the right tips and laws and strategies and principles. But if you don't get after the things that are going on underneath the surface, you will continue to clean the cobwebs in your life financially all the while there's a spider that keeps producing cobwebs. So today what I want to do is talk about and begin that work beneath the surface. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Luke. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Luke is one of three, is the third of four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Luke was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. He wasn't there to witness these moments, but he tells us in his introduction that he has done meticulous research as a doctor to study all of the eyewitness accounts, to interview the people who were there, and then he assembles their recollections, their memories, their accounts of what happened and what Jesus said and what he taught. And Luke includes a number of moments of stories of events where Jesus talks about money. 
And I think the reason why is that money is the chief competitor for the area that God wants to have in our lives. And last week we looked at one story from Luke. Today we're going to look at another couple moments in Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you're open to Luke 18. Would you stand this morning as we read from God's Word? Beginning in verse 18, Luke records, A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept these all from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he becomes sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, we've left all we had and followed you. And so Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, parents, or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Jesus, I pray that you would begin to do heart surgery in our midst this morning. I pray that you would reveal the things going on beneath the surface, those spiders that are hanging out in the darkness. And I pray that you would begin the work of setting people free today. We pray this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Today, what I'd like to do in this text and a couple others is share with you three truths about freedom in Christ that certainly pertain to money, but that speak to maybe a a larger principle even beyond money. And here's the first one. Jesus offers us a path to freedom, but we have to choose it. Jesus offers us a path to freedom, but we have to to choose it. The text in Luke 18 says a a rich ruler came to Jesus. It says in other passages in the Gospels that speak about this same event that he was also young, which is why over time he's become known as the rich young ruler. I think one of the worst things that can happen to you in life is for you to become wealthy at a young age, because often you don't have the capacity to manage that money. But this, this young man not only had gotten a, a amount of wealth at a young age, he also had been raised in a very religious environment, so much so that, that he believed that he'd kept all of the commandments, the, the big ten, the ten commandments, the ones that you've seen before in people's homes or in certain buildings. And, and he says, I, I've kept all of the law. And, and Jesus begins to list off some of the ten commandments, specifically the ones in the latter section. The Ten Commandments kind of fall in two different sections. The first four are about how we relate to God. The latter six are about how we relate to each other. And here in the first part of Luke 18, Jesus lists five 
that have to do with us relating to each other. And the man goes, well, I've kept all those. And what I find so interesting is Jesus doesn't argue with him. Now, if I said to Jesus, hey, I've kept all of those, Jesus would probably be able to go, well, Scott, do you remember in 1996? The same thing he'd be able to say to you, you know, that none of us have kept the commandments perfectly. But the young man says he has, and Jesus doesn't argue with him. But what he does is he brings out the final commandment from the list of 10, which says, do not covet, which is a King James word for wanting what is not yours. It's basically the the sin of greed. And he says to this young man, there's one thing you lack. You have not gotten over your attachment to wealth and to greed. And so he says, the one thing you lack is to take everything you own, your riches, to convert all of that into cash, because in that day, it was more often than not that your wealth was attached in stuff than it was in cash. Sell all of your things, give that money away, and then come follow me. Essentially, what Jesus was asking this young man was a question. Is your security in money, or will you allow me to secure your future? Is your security, your sense of of well-being for the future attached in money? Or can you attach your well-being to me and follow me and trust me? And the text says that the man walked away extremely sad. Another way to translate that word that's a Greek word into English is despondent. It wasn't just that his head bowed, his shoulders probably dropped. And he walked away from a conversation that I think, again, this is not Bible, this is Scott. I think he carried with him for the rest of his life. Sometimes there's some, there's some moments in your life that you carry with you and the decisions you make for the rest of your life. Now, what Jesus goes on to say there is that wealth is something that we ought to be wary of, that is difficult near impossible for someone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And later he says, what's impossible for man is possible with God. Now, before we go any further, I just want to give you just a warning as you read scripture. And that's to beware of making Jesus's particular response to someone into a universal command. So if today you would consider yourself wealthy, Jesus is not saying to every person who has wealth, take all you have, sell it, then give all the money away. We have a tendency to universalize particular moments with Jesus. And, and, and we ought not to do that. Specifically, if you've read that story about Jesus spitting in the dirt and healing a man's eyes with his saliva, you know? Jesus could apparently hawk a pretty good loogie, you know? Um, so he's not saying, hey, if you want to be healed today, come here so I can spit. And, you know, we're not universalizing all the particularized moments. But one of the things that I love about Jesus is he goes straight to the heart of what a person's struggle is. And this man's struggle was not just wealth. He didn't just have a problem because he was wealthy. He had a problem because he loved his wealth more than anything else. This is what James K.A. Smith says. He says, you are shaped by what you love. 
And whatever you love and you give your heart and affections to, that begins to shape your life. And the reason why Jesus said to this young man, take what you have, sell it, and then give all the money away, is that he knew that his heart loved money more than anything else. And until he dealt with that, nothing else would matter. It has been said that this young man had great wealth and possessions, but the problem was great wealth and possessions had him too. It's not a sin to have great wealth and possessions, but if you do, it can be a danger because those things can have you. And so my question for you today is, what has you? What do you love most? And where you follow that answer to, you will find what is ultimate and what is God in your life. One of the best definitions of idols that I've heard is whatever you give your imagination and your heart to, whatever means most to you, whatever you look to for what only God can give. And that's what this man had with money. Money was what his heart and imagination were absorbed by. Money, his wealth, is what he looked to for security that only God can give. And when literally God was standing there in flesh and he was saying, hey, you can have your money or you can have me, but you can't have both, the young man said, I'm going to hold on to my money. And that's why we're not starting with financial tips and tricks. Because if money has your heart, it doesn't matter how much you know God's principles in your mind. Freedom will not come by you applying those principles and striving with those principles. Freedom will come when you begin to displace money's place in your heart and allow God to dwell in that place instead. Our friend Carlos from earlier, he would say that freedom doesn't come in striving. Freedom comes in surrender. And so if you're like, Scott, we're not in a good place financially. The first step is not striving to a new place. Your first step is surrendering in this place where you are right now. So, first and foremost, this is where the path to freedom begins, underneath the surface, with God looking to have that central place in our heart. The second principle is this, that Jesus is greater than our broken past and our broken story. Jesus is greater than our broken past and our broken story. So if you're here today or you're watching at home and you're like, Scott, I have made a mess of things financially in your life, I have good news. Jesus is greater. And that's my story. If you weren't here last week, when I got married, my monthly, my yearly income was roughly equivalent to my credit card debt. When we got married, we were over $200,000 in debt without a mortgage in 2008. So luckily, we didn't even have enough money to be in one of those underwater mortgages. We were just trying to make it on our own. And many of those situations that I had brought to our relationship were as a result of my broken past and my broken story with money. 
but I'm here today to tell you that Jesus is greater. And in that passage in Luke 18, what we see is that the way the rich young ruler responded was not the only option. I know that's how the story happened. Jesus said, you can follow me or you can hold on to your money. And the young man chose his money, but he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to choose that way. And I know that because right after that story in Luke 18 is a story in Luke 19 with another young man who was very wealthy, who chose something very different. If you have your Bible still open, just go to the next chapter down in Luke 19. I didn't know until recently this was the context of this famous story in Luke 19, but it's just interesting the way that Luke puts them right together, almost back to back, and the, these rich young men choosing different paths. Luke 19 begins this way. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, because, but he was not able to because he was a wee little man. A wee little man was? Thank you. Okay, you guys went to Sunday school a little bit as kids. So running ahead, Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was a short guy since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I'm going to your house today. Yep, yeah, not, not scripture, but it's close because it's necessary for me to stay at your house. So Zacchaeus quickly came down and he welcomed Jesus joyfully. Now all who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. Apparently Zacchaeus was fairly well, well known in his community and he was well known for his sin. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this house today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, if you were reading and you're like, Scott, did you forget something? I didn't. All Jesus does is invites himself to lunch. Jesus is a little presumptuous. I was told, you don't invite somebody, yourself to somebody else's house. You wait for them to invite you, but Jesus does his own thing. He invites himself, then the people react, and then in the very next verse, Zacchaeus stands there and says, my heart has been changed, and look what I'm going to do. I mean, it is probably the most instantaneous transformation that is recorded in Scripture. That just the invitation and the presence and his connection to Jesus convicted his heart that he'd been stealing from his own countrymen for the oppressor's Rome, that he comes back and says, I'm going to give up half of my possessions, and if I've extorted anything from anybody, spoiler alert, he had, I'll pay back four times as much. Very different choice than the rich young ruler. And it's this reminder that, that Jesus makes freedom available to all of us. But we have to choose that path. 
And it doesn't matter if your story is so broken and your past is so broken that you literally stole from the people who share the same nationality, the same God as you. Even that can be overcome by the grace and mercy of Jesus. And I find it so interesting, the response of the people who were watching, I have to believe they were a little bit cynical about this transformation. Because they, they were like, he's going to the house of that sinful man. I mean, if you'd ask them the question, who is the person you think will never change? They would say, Zacchaeus. I, I wonder for you, in your life today, who's the person you think will never change? Doesn't have to be with money, just anything. Who's the person that you say, that's just the way they are? Oh, they're always going to be that way. Oh, it drives me nuts. Are they ever going to change? I have people in my mind like that. You want to know who one of those people is? Me. Is that person you? When you look in the mirror, you're like, that's always going to be part of my life. That past, that story, that struggle, that's always going to be me. That thing that I get hung up on, it's always going to be me. I have to believe that maybe Zacchaeus thought of himself the same way. And yet, he had an encounter with Jesus while he was hanging from the branch of a sycamore tree, and he realized that Jesus and his grace were greater. See, Zacchaeus believed that Jesus and the way that he offered was better than the life that he was living, and it was possible to live a different life. And, and part of what I want to say to you, if you're at a place today where you're like, Scott, I have made a mess of things financially, or we are not at a good place financially, or I can see us headed for a place that's not good financially, I just want to encourage you, a different path is possible. If you had told me in 2008, when I was sitting down for premarital counseling and I finally owned up to just how bad my credit card debt was, if you had told me that in 2022 I was going to be standing here doing an entire series about money issues, I would have laughed you out of the room. Not because I wasn't a speaker, but because I was ashamed. I could barely talk about this with the woman that I was going to spend the rest of my life with. I wasn't going to talk to a bunch of people that I don't know very well, some of whom I've never even seen before. And yet 14 years later, here I am. Not because I strove my way into it, and willed my way into it, but because Jesus and the way he offered me was better and his grace was greater. And so I just want to encourage you today that if you're not in a great place, that God and his grace are capable of doing exceedingly and abundantly more than you can imagine, and you have no idea where the grace of God can take you. You have no idea what the grace of God can transform in you. Now, I'll be honest, it's been a hard road. I've had to give up a lot of things that I liked. 
I've had some hard conversations and that heart surgery was painful. But I just want to encourage you that Jesus is greater than your broken past and your broken story. Here's the final truth. Freedom comes into our hearts first and then it reshapes our habits second. The freedom that Jesus brings, he brings it into our hearts first and then it begins to reshape our habits second. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeats a similar idea. One of the best places or clearest places is Matthew 15. He says, summoning the crowd, Jesus told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In the day of Jesus, everyone was so worried about what you put in your body or the things that you did. But Jesus was saying, hey, the real place that's unclean is your heart. And your heart is the, is the source of all the words that come out of your mouth, all the things that come out of your life. And so if you really want to experience holiness and cleanliness and transformation, you have to start in the heart. Not just fixing the externals, but allowing God into the internal. And the freedom that God wants to bring is first a heart freedom, and then it is a habit freedom. And this is the metaphor of the spider. If you have cobwebs in your house, you can get your broom out. You can get on a ladder and you can get up to those super tall ceilings and knock those cobwebs down. But if there's a spider in your house, you're going to be up on that ladder again. And all too often, even in the church, we forget the principle of Jesus. And what we end up doing is we end up managing the superficial. Instead of allowing Jesus deep into that subterranean under the surface stuff. We're all tempted to project this superficial performance, image to the world. But the one place that we have the freedom to not do that is with Jesus. And so in his book, Kill the Spider, here's how Carlos defines and breaks the metaphor down. He says, a spider is an agreement we have made with a lie. So when we hear a lie and we're tempted by a lie from our enemy, Satan, and we agree with that, a spider is born. And let me tell you what my spider was in that season when I was just creating more and more and more and more debt every month living outside of my means. Here was, my, here was the lie I made an agreement with. Here was my spider. I am not worthy of love and belonging because I can't afford to do those things. I was in community with people who lived at a level above me financially. And the insecurity that I dealt with manifested that I didn't fit with them and I wouldn't be accepted by them and I wouldn't belong with them if I couldn't afford those things. And so I said, okay, I've got to, I've got to figure out a new way. Instead of going, hey... <laughs> If these people are really your friends, they're going to accept you and you can be with them no matter what your financial level is. See, before you start judging me for my lies, if we were to trade seats, it'd probably be the same way. Lies don't have to be reasonable to be believable. And so I began to believe that lie. 
And I made an agreement with that lie. It produced a spider. It led to cobwebs. And cobwebs are medicators that bring false comfort to that lie. Medicators are the things that we do to make us feel better about the things that that we don't want to face or deal with. And so my medicator, my cobweb, was credit card spending. And I'm so sad to tell you that I had five figures of credit card spending and I could not put a finger on one item I'd bought with that because so much of it went to coffee. (laughs) I had thousands, thousands of dollars of credit card debt for coffee. I was a coffee addict. Eight, 10, 12 shots a day. And I'm sharing this not so you can smile and laugh at me because I see some of you smiling right now. (laughs) But so that you will know that this and the groups that you're going to be a part of this week are a safe place for you to admit yours. And with every time out for coffee or every time out for a meal or every night out with friends, I felt okay until I came home. And then I felt like I wasn't worthy or I was lonely again. And when I encountered that lie, it was a temptation. But when I agreed with that lie, it was sin. And let me tell you from personal experience how much I believe the next thing I'm going to show you on the screen. Tim Keller says this. He says, money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. Some of you right now are are scared for the future because you see where your 401k is heading. And you're like, if I could just get the market to turn around, I would feel more control. No, that's a lie. You're not in control of the future when you're up and to the right. And the future is not out of control when it's down and to the left. Only God can give you that kind of control. Only God can give you that kind of security. Only God can give you that kind of peace. And that's why the path to freedom begins with God's work beneath the surface in our lives. So I want to walk you through some practices this week. And the first one is, if you want to dig into this Kill the Spider series, we did a whole series on this concept back in 2019. I know it was in the BC times, you know, before COVID. Um, But there's some great stuff there. If you go on our website in the sermon archive, it says search for Kill the Spider. You can't actually do that. I don't know why this works. Either search kill or search spider. If you put the in, it breaks the whole system. I have no idea. I spent way too much time this week trying to figure out why. But just enter kill or enter spider. There's four messages there. Three I gave. One, my friend Jeff Noonan, who's a part of our church, gave. And I think those could be helpful if this is a challenge for you. But here's the first practice. Identify the lie. Identify the lie. Identify the spider. You say, Scott, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to give you a sentence here that I want you to fill out this week. The sentence is this. When blank happened, I started to believe blank. In my experience, you can find the source of your spider when you go back into your biography and identify the moment that something traumatic happened. 
In my experience, spiders are always attached to stories. So when this thing happened, I started to believe this lie. I agree with that lie, and that spider was born. So first, identify the lie. Second, confess the lie. In James, the book written by the half-brother of Jesus, he said this. He said, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And I think that is the context of this. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. You cannot do step two by yourself. This is not just you confess to God. It's you confess to someone else. And then that person who's with you that heard your confession then prays for you. I just shared mine with you. And I'm asking you this week to confess yours to someone else. Because I will tell you where shame and spiders thrive the most is in secret and in darkness. And spiders and shame lose their power when you bring them out into the light. So you confess it. Third, you renounce and reject it. You renounce and you reject the lie. Probably more on this next slide that you can write down, so feel free to go back and watch this later if you want to write this all down. But here's how I would do it. Jesus, blank is a lie. For me, be Jesus the, the fact that I'm only worthy of love and belonging if I can keep up with the people around me is a lie. And I send it to the foot of the cross where you defeated all my sin. I reject this lie and I renounce it. Let me tell you something. This stage is kind of like forgiveness. Forgiveness is a decision and a process. You choose to forgive someone and then you continue to choose to forgive them every time you're tempted to hold on to the bitterness. You re reject and renounce the lie and then every time the lie comes back in that you're tempted by it, by the enemy, you go through this again. Sometimes one moment and it's done and sometimes you have to do it over and over and over again. And then finally, number four, replace the lie with the truth. It's not enough to just get the lie out. You got to make sure that something reoccupies that space. And so for me, I realized that if I was going to overcome the lie I believed about money, I was going to have to deal with my insecurity. And I had to start replacing the truth about who God says I am with that place. So I've got a little resource for you. If you go to our website, prescottcornerstone.com slash resources, You'll see a link there where you can download a chart where I've put down 10 of the most common lies we believe about money and the truth that corresponds with that. We've got a few copies out in the lobby at the connection table if you want to grab one before you leave. But I'd encourage you, maybe your lie's on there and I've given you a head start. If it's not, there's 66 books of truth. I'd encourage you to go find your truth in the book of his truth. Not just your truth. His truth. That he wants to apply in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you don't just want to clean up the outside of our lives. 
you didn't just come to give us a makeover, to, to fix our external image. You came to transform our hearts. You came to release us from captivity. You came to lead us in to a life that is abundant and free and full. And so today, Jesus, I pray for every person in this room and every person who will be able to hear my voice through a device that they might recognize that you and your way is better. That you and your grace is greater. And in the place that they don't feel like they have enough, that you promise to be enough. That you are their shepherd and that you meet all their needs. I pray that you would give clarity this week to the lies and the places that we have been bound up in shame. I pray that in community, we would confess and make known those things and experience your love and grace through the power of a person with skin on next to us who would hear us and embrace us and pray for us. And I pray that we would experience you being enough in this place. And from that, you would lead us down a path to different habits and a different future. I thank you for what you've done in my life over the last 14 years. And I thank you for what's to come. I thank you for the promise that you are capable of doing exceedingly and abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine. We claim that today. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand and sing with me?